following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you've been here at ICC for any length of time, you've probably gotten used to a bit of a rhythm in my preaching style, which is that I tend to connect sermons one week to the next by doing a brief review of the previous week's message, and then somehow seeing if there are ways that I could tie it in to the message for the day. Uh, Today I'm going to do a little bit more of an extended review than normal, uh, because there were a fair number of points that I couldn't cover in last week's message. And I think there's going to be a lot of connection between what I want to say about last week's message and the the text for this morning, so that hopefully it's not going to feel like it's two totally separate messages that you're hearing Last week, we looked at the Old Testament law of retribution, which in Latin is known as lex talionis. The phrase that we always associate it with is something that's uh, very well known, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, While, and as I said that last week, while this law of retribution was clearly intended to contain what easily could become a spiraling escalation of violence when we are retaliating for the wrongs that have been done against us. I I said that last week. We also have to acknowledge that in as much as it acted as a containment measure, it also required retribution or justice. Deuteronomy 19.21, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So that was the Old Testament teaching is that justice must be done when a wrong has been committed, to acknowledge the victims of the abuse and the wrongdoing. But this is where Jesus sort of parts ways a bit. And rather than exacting revenge against those who have wronged us, Jesus calls his followers to respond with a heart of mercy, not retribution. And he, in fact, gives four examples that show how potently the impact of this teaching ought to affect the way we live our lives. If someone insults you or humiliates you, don't attack back or defend yourself. Believe yourself vulnerable, actually, for further attack. If someone sues you, don't fight to claim your rights, but actually show kindness to the very person who has this lawsuit against you. If someone uses their authority to force you to do something that you don't want to do, in essence, conscripting you into forced labor, rather than resisting that effort, see how you could be a further help to that person. And then lastly, if someone asks to borrow money and there's a sort of a hidden implication there that this person may very well never be able to pay you back because they may be poor or whatever other circumstance, it says be generous financially with them even though they may may never repay you that loan. And the basic idea is that rather than retaliating against those who hurt us or take advantage of us, return their evil with kindness and mercy. And I know it's Jesus that spoke these words, and so we need to be respectful. But it's hard, isn't it, not to be offended by the outrageously impractical nature of this teaching. I mean, if we really live our lives this way, wouldn't it really invite people to take advantage of us, to basically walk all over us? And that risk, I think, is real. If you really 
obey this teaching. And truthfully, that's why, if we're really honest, most of us don't even attempt to obey these commands. G.K. Chesterton famously said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I think what I'm saying is that faith is needed not only to empower us to live this impossible life, but frankly, we also need faith to even attempt that life because the truth is, I think in our own thinking, this is not even a desirable life. It's not the life we want for ourselves or for our loved ones. And so faith is needed even to believe that God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom and to even enter into that life. I also mentioned in last week's sermon that there are all of these questions that arise from this teaching of pacifism and non-retaliation. And and I didn't get to address it last week. And I just want to say a brief word on that. Like, what do we do about all the panhandlers and beggars that we see in the streets of Chicago are frankly now working their way? I'm surprised by how many of them I actually see in the suburbs nowadays. What about serving in the military? Or what about self-defense? I mentioned this a few sermons ago, but um, legalism is when we reduce morality to nothing more than rule following, okay? And that's why the Pharisees had such a hard time with Jesus healing on the Sabbath, because he was breaking the rule of rest. And what Jesus was trying to get them to see is, you're so stuck on this rule of doing no work on the Sabbath where you don't realize this very healing ministry that I'm doing is honoring the Sabbath by providing rest for these people who have suffered for so long. And so uh, while rules are important, we need to look beyond them to see the principles and the basic convictions that give rise to those rules. And so what I said a few messages ago is that at times we may, at time we may find that in order to honor the principle, We have to actually break the rule itself. And the scenario I gave is of a child being told, don't ever touch any knives that you see in the house. And yet, when she sees her baby brother grabbing for a knife on the counter, she is smart enough to know I have to break this rule in order to keep my baby brother from grabbing that knife and hurting himself. There are also times when we need wisdom to determine the most God-honoring path When principles conflict with one another. And the scenario I gave there is if you're hiding uh, Jews and the Nazis come knocking on your door and ask you, are you hiding Jews? Now you're stuck with this principle of saving life versus telling the truth. And those values are in conflict with one another. And that's the dilemma of living in a broken world is that sometimes we have to decide among competing principles what the right course is. Of action is. And all of that applies to this issue of non retaliation and pacifism, where there aren't always easy choices to be made. D.A. Carson writes in Cambridge, England, where I first presented this material, and he's referring to his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. A large number of beggars prey on the student population with constant and frequently belligerent demands for handouts. Some of these men are in dire need, and it is a shame there is still no adequate center for them. But many are just using the students. They get to know the soft-hearted ones and literally prey on them. By saying, give to the one who asks you, does Jesus mean there are no circumstances where that injunction may not apply? I know a Cambridge research student whose tender conscience led him to an affirmative answer to that question and who went bankrupt 
as a result, quite literally doing without food himself while he supplied half a dozen men with the alcohol they would have been better off without. Eventually, he was helped to see that his actions, though well-motivated, were helping neither the men nor himself and were honoring neither Jesus nor his teaching. Carson writes of his own experience interacting with these beggars in in the Cambridge campus where uh, he would offer to find shelter for them or get them food or even help them to get into a rehab program. Uh, but categorically were shunned with any attempts like that because, truthfully, all they really wanted was some money for more alcohol. And so there are these times when maybe giving someone what they're demanding from us will actually hurt them and not help them. Well, what about when it comes to self-defense? Are we ever to protect ourselves? Or is it a purely fatalistic posture that you just literally stand like a rag doll and say, whatever you want to do to me, have at it? There's this interesting story in the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 22 to 25, about the apostle Paul. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? What's interesting is this. There are clearly times when the apostle Paul does take abuse. Talks about being beaten with rods three times and being stoned. So clearly Paul has endured punishment at the hand of authorities in different settings. But here in this situation, he's about to be flogged and he claims his Roman citizenship as a means of avoiding this punishment. And so they don't flog him because the Roman centurions are terrified when they realize that he's a Roman citizen because unlike other people that they've subjugated, Roman citizens cannot be punished without a proper trial. We don't know why Paul chose to do this in this instance, whereas other times he took the beating. But what we can say is that there, are, there is wisdom that is needed here. What if a home invader comes into your house looking to harm you and even your children? Um, there could be an argument made that protecting your loved ones may supersede this pacifistic posture because, in essence, it may be an attempt to save life. But some have also argued that in order to honor this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, that use of force should always stop short of actually murdering a person, if at all possible. You see, there's no, there's no playbook here that we could say this is exactly what it means to do this biblically, but these are some of the ways that we need to wrestle with these competing principles. What about joining the military? Uh, Is it wrong for a Christian to join the army or the Marines or whatever? Um, I think there's actually room for a healthy debate on this subject. That a Christian, based on the teaching of Jesus, 
could come to the conclusion that in obedience to him, I can never raise a gun at another human being and pull that trigger, even in the context of war. Now, other Christians will object and say, hold on a minute. Isn't there such a thing as a just war where we fight for a righteous cause? And you could make that argument. But one of the problems is this. Every nation that starts a war thinks that their war is a just war, doesn't it? And, truthfully, the Christians of that nation, historically, have fully supported that war. And I think there's a problem there. When we are constantly finding loopholes to get around this command of Christ, to respond with violence and evil, with peace. Scott McKnight writes, The dominating idea here is that following Jesus matters above everything else. My own posture is one of pacifism, and here is the logic that I find compelling. I cannot kill a non-Christian for whom Christ has died and to whom I am called to preach the gospel for the state. That would be rendering to Caesar what is God's and deconstruct the kingdom mission. I cannot kill a fellow Christian for the state. That would be rendering to Caesar what is God's. My first allegiance is to the king and to his kingdom people. I am called to cooperate with the state to the degree it is consistent with the kingdom. I cannot in good conscience cooperate with the state when it is inconsistent with the kingdom. That would be to render to Caesar what is God's. I cannot ask in the first instance if this is practicable. I am to ask in the first instance what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that's a real wrestling that we as Christians need to do in a world that is filled with justifiable violence, it seems, in every corner. What does it mean for me to apply this principle of non-retaliation in my life when there are other principles that are competing with it? And the danger that I'm trying to point us to is that we can treat every case like it's an exception, finding constant loopholes so that at the end of the day, the teaching of Jesus on non-retaliation ends up meaning nothing to us in the way that we actually live our lives. I think what Jesus is really trying to get us to see is this fundamental heart attitude, the way that we harbor grudges and breed resentment, and then we look in that state of our heart for opportunities to take revenge against those who have hurt us or offended us. I want to say one last thing and then we'll get into the text this morning. I said at the beginning of these six antitheses that the way that the pattern that Jesus follows is to begin each one by saying, you have heard it said, and then saying something about the law, and then basically saying, you've misunderstood that law. I want to say, though, that with this fifth antithesis about non-retaliation, this lex talionis issue, it's a little thorny because it's as if Jesus is upturning the law itself, really, in this example. Because the Old Testament law clearly does say vengeance must be exacted in these cases of injustice. And Jesus seems to be basically contradicting it and saying, I don't want you to take justice. Leave justice to God. You respond with non-retaliation. And to that, I think what is important for us to acknowledge is that where there is this type 
of comparison between what Jesus is doing and what the Old Testament says Jesus has to take priority in the sense that he is the fulfillment of that very Old Testament, that he not only becomes the interpreter of it, but he is the fulfillment of it. And in that fulfillment, there can be even some change that occurs, like the food laws that were no longer required among the Jews to separate Gentile and Jew. Carson writes, Jesus' authority is one of the most dominant features in this chapter, referring to Matthew 5. The law and the prophets point forward toward him, but he himself determines their meaning fulfillment and continuity with an authority nothing less than divine. McKnight puts it this way, yes, one can justify war by appealing to the Old Testament. It's all set out in gory detail with divine justification. But this begs the question of how to read the Bible. What the Bible's story does is this. It takes us from Moses to Christ and says, now follow Jesus. It doesn't place Christ as an equal alongside Moses or Elijah, which was Peter's temptation in Matthew 17. No, it says, listen to him. That's what God is saying is, Jesus, my son, is the fulfillment, the pinnacle, the height of understanding my heart. And so where there is discrepancy or confusion or a fog, it says, don't put my son as equal to Moses or Elijah or anyone else. Listen to my son. Because he is the clearest revelation of my heart for this world. So that then brings us to this final antithesis. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. Where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think a good case could be made that this last antithesis isn't just the last of a list of six. Instead, the call to love everyone, even our enemies, is the overarching principle that summarizes everything that Jesus has been saying in these antitheses. And this is the way I'm going to break down this last teaching. I want to first explore who are our enemies, and then secondly, I want to talk about what it means to love them, and then lastly, I want to highlight Jesus' motivation for loving our enemies. I think this teaching of loving our enemies has to be maybe arguably the most famous teaching of Jesus. Uh, Many outside the church are familiar with it, aren't they? And yet I would also argue it's arguably one of the least obeyed commandments of Jesus. It falls into that category of hopelessly idealistic and impossible to obey. As I was, I, and the, I'll be honest with you, I really struggled preparing this message this week. And it was, that struggle was at a lot of levels. One of the most immediate ways that I was struggling with this sermon is basically with the most fundamental idea of who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? Because I don't know about you, but it's not a term I use very commonly 
I've never been at a prayer meeting and said, guys, could you pray for John? Because he is my mortal enemy. And I hate him. And he's coming to town. And I fear there's going to be a showdown. It's just not a word I use to refer to almost anyone. My enemy. I mean, it sounds so epic. Like I'm a superhero or something like that, you know? Like who is my Joker or my Lex Luthor or my Green Goblin? But this is something I think that is absolutely crucial for us to recognize. Unless we can name who our enemy is, this command will have no impact on our lives. Do you get that? If you don't know who your enemy is, then this this teaching is meaningless to you. So let me begin with a definition of how to think of who your enemy is. Your enemy is anyone that you devalue or dehumanize with your hatred and your absence of goodwill for them. What I'm saying is, who are the people in your life where the relationship has gotten bad enough that you're not really actually sure that you wish them well or that you want good things to happen to them anymore? They are basically in a category of being unworthy of your goodwill, your respect, or your kindness. Meaning, for these people, you don't really care what happens to them. In fact, maybe there would be a secret pleasure in seeing them suffer or be hurt or not do well. And when I was looking at this Matthew 5, what I realized is I think Jesus himself is basically outlining two kinds of enemies that we have in our life. The first kind of enemy is tribal. It's tribal. New Testament scholars, I mentioned this last week, believe that Matthew 5.41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, refers to what Roman soldiers had the authority to do to pretty much anyone in the empire, which is if I needed some baggage carried or something moved, rocks moved from here or there, I could literally grab anyone off the street and say, go a mile with me and you carry the heavy load for me. And so that type of enemy is tribal, right? Because if you are a Jew, your tribal allegiances as a Jew tell you who your enemies are. And I think they're implied throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For the Jew, it was the Roman. It was the Samaritan. It was the Gentile. It was the tax collectors and prostitutes and other immoral Jews who didn't obey the law of Moses. And I want to ask you that, that first type of enemy. Who are the tribal enemies in your life? Far-right Republicans and Trump supporters? Leftist Democrats and never-Trumpers? White supremacists? Black Lives Matter protesters? Liberal Christians or Catholics? Fundamentalist Christians? Militant LGBTQ activists? Fundamentalist Muslims or atheists? The obscenely rich who shelter all of their money so that they don't have to pay taxes? Welfare moms living 
on public assistance and draining the system, never held a job in their life. I intentionally used triggering photos and pejorative terms to describe these people for a reason. Because I think quite often this is how we talk about these different groups of people, isn't it? And I suspect that different pictures evoked different negative feelings in this congregation. You may not necessarily use the language of enemy, but Jesus is in essence saying that's what those people represent in your life. You have no goodwill for them. In fact, you may even wish them harm. You hate them because of what they represent, something that you are against. And that's why that hatred can even feel justified, if not pleasurable, to hate these groups of people. But then the second kind of enemy that's also very clear in the Sermon on the Mount is the enemy of a personal kind. It's a personal kind. These are the ones that have become your enemy because they are close enough to you to hurt you. They have insulted you or mistreated you, or abused you, or took advantage of you in one way or another. And the truth is, I have not met a single person who doesn't have at least a few people on that enemy list, who has offended us deeply enough that we have now turned our heart against them, even dehumanized them. And whether it's a certain type of person or specific people in our lives, I just want to say that again. If you cannot come up with an enemy list, we haven't even taken the first steps in obeying this command. And what I want to ask you is, do you have the honesty and the self-awareness enough to confess that such a list exists in your own heart? Because naming our enemies requires us to admit that there are some people we believe are undeserving of our love. Well, then how about loving that enemy once we have named them? Well, here it is. The radical command of Jesus as his followers is that we ought to love every single person that we have labeled in that category of enemy. Jesus says, you owe them your love. Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's a problem because the first part is in the Bible. It's Leviticus 19, verse 18. But that second part is not in the Bible. There is no verse in the law of Moses that says, hate your enemy. So the question is, where did the Jews come up with that? Well, you... Look in the law of Moses, it says the opposite. Exodus 23, 4 to 5 is just one example of that. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. That's what the law of Moses says about how to treat the animal of your enemy. God commands kindness toward them. So then where did this call come from to hate your enemy? Well, you can actually find it in other Jewish writings. 
which have basically labeled certain categories of people children of darkness is what they most commonly call them. Children of darkness. These were people that were enemies of Israel and therefore justifiably hateable because they thought this is how God sees them. God must hate them. And so because we are God's people, we ought to hate them as well. And Jesus corrects that misconception. And he says, listen, love everyone, even your so-called enemies. In fact, Jesus taught that the entire Old Testament law was about loving God and loving others. In Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus makes a powerful argument here. He not only says that love of God and love of neighbor are the two most important commands in all of the Old Testament, but he in fact goes even further and says everything in the prophets and in the law points to these two commands. In other words, the entire Old Testament is actually a story about love. Love for God and love for others. And here was the problem between Jesus and the Jews. You see, the Jews could look at that and say, "Uh, yeah, that's fine. We love God. And we have no problem loving our neighbor. But here was the problem. They had defined neighbor so narrowly that basically it included only their inner circle of the people that they liked. And so they said, yeah, we are already obeying this, Jesus. There's no problem here. Uh, I had lunch this past Friday with uh, Charlie Chen. He used to actually attend our church, but he's at a different church now. Uh, We actually did journey groups together, and that's how we ended up getting really close. And I love talking to the guy because every time I meet with him, he's been on some other crazy adventure like riding in the outback of Idaho or um, in the boundary waters, portaging. And uh, so I had lunch with him, and uh, he was telling me, he goes, you know, uh, uh, I spent some extended time um, with the Amish. <laughs> I was like, yeah, tell me about that, you know. Uh, I don't know why he spent time with the Amish, but he just said, I really wanted to know how the Amish live. So he ended up inviting himself into their homes and eating meals with them and spending actually quite an extended time with them. And this is what he said about what, he, what struck him the most about these Amish is their unbelievable commitment to one another. He said if any of them experiences a catastrophe, each one of them will go to the bank and cash out enormous sums of money in order to help that person rebuild their life. Um, Some of you may be familiar with this tradition of the Amish, but if an Amish farmer needs a barn built, the entire community will come together and build that family a barn, often in a single day. The Amish, in most communities, opt out of social security, and they almost never purchase commercial insurance policies. Because they think that that violates the fundamental fabric of their community, which is to say, I will take care of you if you are in trouble. You don't need insurance. We are your insurance. 
I thought, man, could we attempt that at ICC? <laughs> Think how much money we would save in premiums, you know? I mean, let's be honest here. The commitment level of the Amish puts most church communities to shame, doesn't it? But here is the thing. As impressive as this kind of love looks to us, Jesus actually says, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. Verses 46 to 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. It's interesting. By singling out tax collectors, Jesus chose the one group that Jews considered among the most morally bankrupt in their midst. Because these tax collectors were considered traitors who were working with the enemy by collecting taxes for the Roman oppressors. Because the way it worked was that the Roman government fixed a certain sum of money that had to be collected in each region for taxes. And then what they told the local tax collectors is, anything you collect over that is your profit. And as a result of that, there was all kinds of bribery and corruption. And these tax collectors, though they were Jews, became rich by exploiting their own people under the protection of Rome. And yet this is what Jesus says. As terrible as these people are, as morally bankrupt as they are, even tax collectors have friend circles. And they help each other out. Scott McKnight calls this kind of love, prejudicial love. Because that is love that is offered up totally based on our own agenda of what we want out of that relationship. He writes, prejudicial love is no barometer of one's moral life. Prejudicial love is only a way of loving ourselves. To love enemies breaks through the self-barrier into divine space. What Jesus in essence is saying is when you only love those who love you, we don't need God to explain any of that. But when you love your enemy, then something supernatural is happening there. Astonishingly, Jesus declares that our neighbor, whom we are obligated to love by the law of Moses, includes even our enemy. That was what was so radical about Jesus' teaching. He says, you want to obey the law of Moses by loving your neighbor? Here is the truth. Even your enemy is your neighbor. And to love our enemy is more than just passively avoiding them or choosing not to actively harm them. But it is actually to take active steps for their good, to put their needs, their welfare, even above your own. And you got to wonder, how in the world does anybody really do this? This is impossible. Well, I think we find at least part of the answer in Jesus' teaching here. In verse 44, it says, But I tell you, love your enemies, and then he says this, and pray for those who persecute you. I think what Jesus is saying is this. One of the best ways to learn how to begin even to love your enemies is by praying for them. Because through prayer, you begin to see them as God sees them. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes about this dynamic of prayer. I can no longer condemn or hate other Christians for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble they cause me. In intercessory prayer, the face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. That is a blessed discovery for the Christian who is beginning to offer intercessory prayer for others. Offering intercessory prayer means nothing other than Christians bringing one another into the presence of God, seeing each other under the cross of Jesus as poor human beings and sinners in need of grace. Then everything about other people that repels me falls away. Then I see them in all their need, hardship, and distress. Their need and their sin become so heavy and oppressive to me that I feel as if they were my own. And I can do nothing else but bid, Lord, you yourself, you alone, deal with them according to your firmness and your goodness. Offering intercessory prayer means granting other Christians the same right we have received, namely the right to stand before Christ and to share in Christ's mercy. Now, Bonhoeffer is specifically addressing relationships within the church among fellow believers, but I think it's just as applicable for all of our enemies. I want to ask, is there someone in your life that you are struggling to love? Can I challenge you to take a step of faith and begin to pray for that person? Let's be honest. Even praying for that person can be pretty hard to do, right? Because by definition, our enemy is somebody that we don't want good to happen to. But by praying for that person, it's reversing that very attitude, isn't it? And saying, I want good for my enemy. And I'm doing that through this act of prayer, saying, God, be merciful to them. God, show them kindness. Show them your mercy. But through that prayer of faith, I believe God can begin to melt our hearts that are in such opposition to the people that we hate in our lives. Begin to replace it with a genuine heart of love. Well, lastly, let me say a word about the motivation for loving our enemies. And I want to do it by beginning with just a little story here. During the early months of the pandemic, when we were in that mode, when we were total lockdown, and I got a little sick of making puzzles, because <laughs> I felt like that's all our family was doing, was uh, doing puzzles, um, I became fascinated with these art restoration videos on the Internet. Um, are you guys even familiar with art restoration? Where they, uh, anyway, as a kid, I used to wonder, why do the classic paintings, the masterpieces from the Renaissance and, and whatever period, always look so horrible? <laughs> they're, they're, they're so yellow and dingy and dirty. And I assumed back then that it was just that in those olden days, they didn't have really high-quality paints that had accurate colors like we do. Everything had a yellow tinge to it. And so that's all they had available is everything was made out of dirt or something. I don't know. So that's what they painted with. But it's, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's actually the varnish that painters would use to protect their paintings. Varnish is basically like a clear coat that they would cover to protect the paint. And it's that varnish that begins discoloring over many decades that ruins the painting. And obscures the original colors of the painting into this sort of dingy amber color. 
But using modern technology, art restorers have learned how to remove that old varnish without damaging the paint that is underneath. It's, it's striking, isn't it? What's lying underneath that varnish. Uh, and here you can see what a big difference that this restoration can make when you see a restored painting next to the original. More recently, I was intrigued when this Johannes Vermeer painting was up for restoration. It's a painting called Girl Reading a Letter at an Open Window. And this painting was very recently restored. That's not the restoration, that's the original. It depicts this young woman who is oblivious to her surroundings, lost in her thoughts. And she is reading a letter that she's holding in her hands through the light of this open window. Back in the 70s, art historians actually x-rayed this painting. And in doing an x-ray of it, they realized that the painting had been doctored. It had been altered in some substantial ways. But it is only recently, very recently, that we discovered what that alteration was through the restoration itself. The restoration revealed something amazing. It not only revealed the original colors that Vermeer used, but it also revealed in what we thought was a blank wall behind the woman that Vermeer had originally painted a portrait on that wall. And it was assumed by art historians that Vermeer had actually painted over that portrait himself because he must have changed his mind, didn't like it. But through an analysis of the paint job, we now know that that editing happened decades after Vermeer's death. So someone other than Vermeer messed with his painting by covering up that portrait in the back wall. But with this restoration, we can now see the painting as Vermeer originally intended us to see it. And that has radically transformed our interpretation of this painting. Because that portrait behind the woman is a portrait of Cupid, the Roman god of erotic love. And Cupid is standing above two masks, theater masks. And one of Cupid's feet is stepping on one of the masks. And the moment we have realized now that Cupid's presence is in this painting, it suddenly becomes clear what Vermeer was trying to tell us. This woman is reading a love letter. And maybe Vermeer is trying to say something even more through that Cupid portrait by telling us that love can conquer every deception, every deceit. It also brings a whole new meaning to this bowl of fruit that is spilling out of this, onto this bed. I don't know, is she pregnant? <laughs> Who knows? It just, what, what I'm saying is this. Now that we can see the original painting, it opens an entirely new world of possibilities of understanding the story that Vermeer wanted to tell through it. Well, why am I sharing all this with you? Well, because of this. Like this painting, we have been created by God to reflect his image. 
and to tell his story. But sin has marred that image so that we are not what God originally intended us to be. We are not the image bearers that we ought to be. But part of the redemption purchased for us through Christ is the restoration of that image of God in us so that we can now be what we were originally intended to be. Look at the motivation that Jesus offers for loving our enemies in verse 44 to 45 and verse 48. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, read the wrong way, it can sound like Jesus is stating a conditional clause here. Meaning, if you want to be considered one of God's children, well, then you better love your enemy because that's the condition. I think a better way to understand what Jesus is telling his disciples is this. God loves his enemies. And we show the world that he is our father when we display the same love to our enemies. You know, in biblical times, children were expected to uphold the family name by living in a way that honored the value of their parents. And I think even as modern-day parents, we understand what a great joy it is to see a glimpse of yourself in your kids, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one of the joys of parenting, whether it's their physical appearance or their sense of humor or their intelligence or their athletic or artistic or musical talents. Somehow, when we see a bit of ourselves in our kids, it puts a smile in any parent. And I think what Jesus is saying is that God is no different. He delights when he sees himself in his spiritual children. But the sad truth is that sin derails us from being these image bearers that God has created us to be. We see this throughout the six antitheses, right? If you look at the comprehensive picture through them of the depth of sin that is created by our uh, treatment of others, look at it. We lash out in anger and dismiss them with our contempt. We objectify, use, and abuse others with our lust. We discard relationships and break promises and break marriages. We use deception to manipulate others rather than telling the truth. And when someone threatens or attacks us, we attack back with greater vengeance. In essence, the sum of all of this, in essence, is to say we devalue and dehumanize others. And we worship ourselves and put ourselves first. And what Jesus is saying is that does not reflect the heart of your Father. Because your heavenly Father is one who loves his enemy. And so you too must love your enemy. God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the evil and the good. In other words, he's saying he shows no discrimination in his love to all of humanity. 
Michael Wilkins writes in his commentary on Matthew, God does not see the same groupings that humans have created. He is not tribal, in other words. He transcends human boundary markers and loves all persons, even those who have rejected him. That is the kind of love Jesus advocates, which is the basis for the worldwide neighborhood of God, in which Jesus' disciples have no enemies, but consider all of God's creatures worthy of our love. I think that heart of God was most powerfully demonstrated on the cross itself in Luke 23, verse 33 to 34. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I'm done here. I'm going to wrap up here. And I'm sorry I went kind of long today, but I just want to say this. There's so many perspectives on the Christian life that we can talk about and we need to talk about as a church. But what I am preaching this morning goes to the very heart of what it means to be children of God. It is the ultimate declaration in the Bible that God is love and therefore his children ought to demonstrate that same love in their lives. And the most difficult part of that is that that love should be shown to everyone, even those people that you consider your enemy. And the only way that we can do that is when we have that love of God in our own heart. This is an impossible command to obey unless we have first experienced that love of God for ourselves. And that is the love that Christ can offer us through what he accomplished on the cross. It's peace with God. Once we were God's enemy, but now we can call him our friend because of what Christ has done. And if we claim to know that grace in our own lives, then what he says is show that same love even to your worst of enemies. Let's pray.